0: My name is Parker O'Shea, I'm the high school youth pastor, you guys grab a seat please. Um, I'm still trying to figure out how I feel about being here with you guys, normally I'm hanging out with the high school students, but um, we are working our way through the book of Proverbs, and the topic we get to talk about today is pride, and so it's like, that's what's got me kind of like, oh, I wonder why I'm here. Um, I think I know, you know, I probably got enough to say about pride, but um, we we will talk about humility also, and... um, I wish I had more from my own brain to pull from, but this is an incredible book. If you guys are unfamiliar with this book, it's called Humility by Andrew Murray. It is uh, very challenging. I would say it's it's a great book. It's a great book if you want your like your heart to be wrecked and for life to feel like you you know you've you've messed up so far. So it's it's really, really awesome. Um in a really, really good way. But um We will, uh, if you guys would, why don't you guys open up to Proverbs chapter 16 and we will dive in. Proverbs chapter 16. I want to read verse 18 and then I got a question for you guys. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. It says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Um, happy Sunday, good morning you guys. <laughs> hope, you're, hope you're buckled up, but question for you, how many of you guys know somebody who their pride has led to the destruction of something in their life? Whether a relationship, a family member, um, or it's, it was their career, their work life, it, reputation maybe, maybe even their own life. Um, You don't have to raise your hand if you are that person yet, but we will ask that question in a second. Um, How many of you guys are familiar with the name Barry Bonds? I see a couple of hands? Okay. If you don't know who Barry Bonds is, he's kind of a legend. He's a baseball legend. He uh, is the home run king, so he hit 762 home runs there's a picture of him in his career 762 that's insane that's crazy Uh, he hit 73 home runs in one year so he's the single season most home run hitter winner kind of guy you know he he's he crushed it he uh seven time mvp in in baseball he he won it uh two thousand one, two thousand two, two thousand three, two thousand four, four years in a row at one point. And no one in MLB history has ever won uh, the MVP more than three times. So this guy is on like another level. I was talking to somebody after first service and they actually said, he's like, I'm a, I'm a sports data analysis guy, that's like what I do. And I, I had this conversation with another guy who did this and that and this and that. And he's like, oh, I got a question for you. What do you think separates baseball players like from the major league level to like minors? Like what is a trait if there was one trait that would separate them from everybody? And he said, I'll give you a hint. Barry Bonds was on a on next level in that regard. And I'm like, I, I have no idea. And he's like, eyesight. Barry Bonds had 2012 vision. And so he could, what, what this guy was saying is he could actually see the ball as it's being released from the pitcher's hand, how the pitcher was holding it. I'm like, whoa, that is crazy. So this guy, Barry Bonds, absolute legend. He was uh, on the ballot for 10 years in a row to be inducted into the Hall of Fame, but he was never inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Do you guys know why? Steroids. It was the era in baseball history that has a, a mark on it. Many people during the era that Barry Bonds played through, they have asterisks next to their names in the, in the sports books because of their statistics, because they don't know if they were on steroids. And Barry Bonds was kind of the face of that. He was an individual who, before the rumors started circulating about him being on steroids, he was like a Hall of Fame caliber player. But as the story goes in, I want to find the title of this book. The book is called Game of Shadows. If you are at all interested in Barry Bonds or baseball, (laughs) it might be interesting. If not, don't worry about it. But in 1998, what it says is that was the year where Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa were going back and forth between who was going to set the record for the single season most home runs. And as Mark McGuire hits number 70, there's a story after the season about Barry Bonds talking with a trainer and him saying that he was actually jealous of the national attention that uh, Mark McGuire was getting. And he's like, I've got just a few years left in baseball and I wanna make it count. I wanna make it worth it. And so three years later in that year, Mark McGuire hit 70 home runs, Barry Bonds hit 37, which 37 bombs is still like, that's a, that's a lot, that's incredible. Three years later, Barry Bonds hit 73, and he set the record for most home runs in a season. And that's when the rumors started circulating. How did he, he was always amazing, but how did he gain so much power so quickly to be able to hit the ball out of the ballpark? And as the story goes, his continues, and does anybody remember when Barry Bonds broke Hank Aaron's home run record? Five baseball fans, cool all right next time we 'll talk about um, gardening or something i don't, i don't know, but i'm sure there's some arrogant gardeners out there, but the the whole idea is if you guys would flip with me to to proverbs chapter twenty five because there's some something else about pride that, that we 'll talk about here in regard to this conversation with with barry bonds proverbs chapter twenty five verse twenty seven as he was chasing the the um, career home run record, there's a story where he was standing in the on-deck circle, ready to go up, he's going to hit next, and uh, somebody from the stands threw in a, a fake syringe just to kind of like, you know, stir him up. And that's the tragedy of, of his journey is when he hit the home run to break the, the career home run record. In San Francisco, people were going crazy. But I remember watching that game and being like, eh, He's a cheater. (laughs) It's not legit. Like, he didn't do it the right way. Proverbs 25, verse 27 says this It is not good to eat much honey. So to seek one's own glory is not glory. It's interesting. He got the record, but in the midst of the pursuit of it, he lost a whole lot more than he gained. He lost respect. He lost any real credit that he had for his career even up until that point. It's a tragedy. And the hard thing about this is every single one of us knows somebody like that, right? That pride has led to the destruction maybe of their reputation, maybe of the credit that they had built up, maybe even their own life. It's the individual who their longing is to have the perfect family. Have you guys met people like that? No, okay, okay. cool, cool. We'll try that again. When I'm with the high school students, this is, this is pretty normal. It also feels like this. There's, there, you know. but, um, so I guess we're just all the same. It doesn't really change. It's that perfect, it's that individual who has this picture in their mind of what a perfect family would look like. And in their efforts to gain that they tear their own family apart. There's strain in the relationships, there's brokenness, there's frustration, there's an over control. There's the person in, a coworker in the work field who will do anything it takes to get the promotion, will compromise morals, will step over people, will use people as objects to gain what they want. By the time they get it, it's fine, but it's to their own shame. There's no glory in it. Pride is, is deadly. It's destructive. It's ugly. But it's also, it's also in every single one of us, right? And if you don't think it's in you, ask your mom. You know, <laughs> be like, am I prideful? Or ask yourself genuinely as you're driving down the road when somebody cuts you off, why are you so upset? When somebody's tailgating you, why is that such a big deal? What's interesting about pride is we can see in other people so clearly, but we easily justify it in ourselves. It's actually okay. Or there's a good reason why I am responding this way. It's destructive. It's in us. And tragically, there's, there's even more. If you guys have a Bible, open up to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, we'll look at verse 6. And as we return in there, I'll make a comment about pride is dangerous because we can see it clearly in other people, but we don't see it in ourselves very well, or we justify it. Pride is also dangerous because it comes in in different, uh, I guess, faces, right? It looks different. You see it in the arrogant person who's all about themselves and everything they can do to gain glory. But then I've also heard an interesting quote in regard to insecurity. Insecurity is the backside of pride. It is just the other side of it. If you Google a definition of insecurity, it'll come up with something along the lines of anxiety about oneself. What is the central focus in insecurity? Really, it boils down to Ourself, my value, my image, my importance in relation to other people or even in my own eyes. It comes in different faces. It's destructive, it's ugly, it's in us. James chapter four takes it even a step further. James chapter four, verse six, there's good news, bad news, good news in this verse, but it says this. But he gives more grace, and we will talk about the good news in a second. But first he says, therefore, he says, God resists the proud. That's actually Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34 in, in a little bit of a different way, a little bit of a twist. Proverbs 3, 34 says something very similar. God resists the proud. The idea of being resisted there is the picture of somebody standing against you ready to fight you. To stand against somebody in battle is the picture that God stands in front of us, to battle us because of our pride. That's intense. (laughs) Pride is not a small thing. And also, the storyline of pride and humility is not a subplot throughout the Bible. It is actually the primary story that is being told from start to finish. We see it in the Even before the creation of the the world, whenever this moment happened, there's the storyline of Satan being cast from heaven, right? And if you remember why he was cast from heaven, there's this claim, and I believe it's in Ezekiel or Isaiah, that I will be like the most high God. And then Jesus says that he saw Satan cast from heaven like a lightning bolt. There, There was not really a fight to be had. God resists the proud and Satan was the author and the perfecter of pride. And what was found in the garden? Adam and Eve with a serpent that deceived them, Satan deceived them with this lie, this this question of did God really say, questioning the character of God and poisoning the heart of humanity with pride to believe that God is withholding something from us and we have to get it on our own. And from that point on, from Genesis chapter 3 to the end of the story in the book of Revelation, it is all one story of God's plan of redemption for humanity. How is He going to do it? In Genesis, it says that there will be a seed from the woman who will crush the head of the serpent, the authority, the place of pride, the control. Andrew Murray said it this way. Uh, Again, Andrew Murray, this guy, wrote this book. It'll really mess you up in a great way. If we can throw that, that slide up there, it says this. The nature of our redemption is not just to bring us back into harmony with God, but it is to destroy that part that separated us from him in the first place. A selfish and prideful heart. James chapter 4, verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Last week, I was on a road trip with a, with a friend, and I knew we were going to be talking about pride and humility this week. And so I asked him, hey, what are your thoughts about pride, humility? And the very first thing he said, without delay, he's like, And you guys should write this down. This is a good quote. He's like, I think humility is the key into the kingdom. You can't get into the kingdom without humility. It's true. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He opens the door of his favor, of his kindness, to those who are humble. So the question is, how do we be humble, right? How many of you guys are well acquainted with pride? And maybe we should start trying to aim for humility a little bit now this morning. So I think, we're, I think we can move on, hopefully. Uh, flip with me to Psalm chapter 90. we we'll Look at what Moses had to say that I think gives us a glimpse into a little bit of humility. The meekest man to live. He also wrote that book. If you guys don't know what I'm talking about, it was written, I believe, in Exodus. He was... The most meek man to live, also was the author of the book. So I don't know, but uh, Moses wrote this uh, this song, this prayer, Psalm chapter ninety, verse twelve. It says this: Moses says, "So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom." It's a pl- great starting place for humility, right? To remember how frail we really are. To remember that our days are numbered. That our, our, as the Bible says, we are but a vapor. We are here today, gone tomorrow. Our days are short. In the scope of human history, we are going to be forgotten in the blink of an eye. In the scope of eternity, we are irrelevant. Our lifetime, 80 years. 90, some, some people, crazy, 100 years. Nothing compared to eternity. So teach us, Moses says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom, that we might be wise. David said this, flip with me to Psalm chapter eight. We're gonna bounce around a lot this morning, you guys. Uh, again, this is not a, a subplot in the Bible. David wrote Psalm 8. I'm sure you guys will be familiar with this, many of you guys. Verse 3. It says this. When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, you have put in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the son of man that you would visit him or give attention to him, to care for him. Another humbling reality, right? Our life is short, we are frail, and as we take a minute to stop, it's so easy in life to, to just let everything revolve around us. And David gives a little prescription for our soul. He says, take some of this. Go stand outside at nighttime and look up in the stars, not in a city, maybe in a city, but even better if you can get outside of the city, and consider God's heavens, what he has created. Look around you. We are so small. Humbling reality. And then he says, in light of that, who am I? What is man that you would even care about us? Those are humbling reminders and realities, but the problem is that does not actually solve the issue within our heart. The issue is deeper. Pride goes deeper. It is not just a character quality to avoid. Humility is not just a character quality to desire. Pride is a sickness in the human heart that we cannot deal with ourselves. Andrew Murray in this book says, uh, Just as we received, we inherited our pride from our first parents, Adam and Eve, we must inherit humility from somebody else. It is not something that we can just muster up. If you've ever tried to just be a little bit more humble, then you know how that went. (laughs) It was painful, and then three days later, it's like you're right back to where you started. There's something deep within us that has to be uprooted, and it's our heart, Again, if we could throw that slide up about Andrew Murray's quote, the nature of our redemption is not just to bring us back into harmony with God, which is the good news, but to deal with that part that separated us from him in the first place, our selfish and prideful heart. So it's not just about hey, be more humble, look around at the world and the stars and remember your life is short and you're small. There has to be something deeper than that. And the good news is that there is. If you guys would flip with me, Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two, we'll start in verse five. And I believe we'll be potentially ending in verse 5 also. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 says this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, which was also in the Messiah Jesus who being in the form of God, the same nature, the essence of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, did not consider something to be held onto. He was willing to let it go in this regard. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. A bondservant is a servant who is willing to serve their master by their own free will. It's a choice that they make for themselves. Jesus chose to come to this earth and as it says in, later in this verse, and coming in the likeness of men, he came as a human being and he chose to be a servant of all out of his own free will. Made himself of no reputation. Verse eight says, and being found in the appearance of a man or as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Man. In Colossians, it says that as Jesus was nailed to the cross, he uh, put on as a public spectacle that which binds us and holds us from God. Jesus' life, his death, was motivated from a place of humility. Just as we inherited our pride from our first parents, Adam and Eve, we must receive humility from somebody else. Namely, the person of Jesus. And it goes on in verse nine saying this about the result, the fruit of his humility. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I don't know how you can read that and not get hyped. Like, that's incredible. But it was motivated from his place of humility, which is a plot twist in all of human history, right? Who would ever, what king would ever step down from their throne to be put to death for a beggar? What, I mean, in our culture, it is bizarre if a boss is actually willing to serve people. It's an upside down kingdom. And our king, the one who is highly exalted above every name, humbled himself. Came as a bond servant. Was willing to die even the most shameful death to be crucified, to be put on, put on blast, to be mocked. A fake trial for us. It's the gospel, right? It's good news. So now the question is, okay, was Jesus a model and now we just model our life after him? The answer is no. Jesus was more than a model. He was the solution to our prideful, selfish heart. And he was the replacement for us. In Ezekiel, it says that he, God is going to one day take out our heart of stone and give us a new heart, a heart of flesh. In other words, God takes our selfish, self-centered, prideful, stony heart and he replaces it with a heart that is fresh, new, sensitive to him and even aware of our own pride. <laughs> if you guys would, Mark chapter 8. We got, I think we've got a couple more verses to look at here. Mark chapter 8. If you guys have been around with us uh, for a while, then you are well acquainted with the Gospel of Mark. We spent all of last school year, I believe it was, maybe the fall to the the end of the spring, studying the Gospel of Mark. and We referenced back to Mark chapter 8 as a pivotal foundational point for followers of Jesus, for the place of our faith. And it's, it's seen in response to who Jesus is as the Messiah, as the Savior. Verse 34 says this. When he had called, bless you, the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That is the entry point into the kingdom. The key into the kingdom is a place of humility who's willing to say, I'm going to deny myself. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, he has finally conquered sin and pride and death. And he's given an entry point for us for new life. And it starts with humility, submission, a denial of ourselves, a willingness to take up our cross and to follow after him. His ways become our ways. I should have told you to keep your finger in Philippians. If you did, awesome, but we'll, be, we'll, we'll wrap up with Philippians chapter two, verse five, one more time. There's, a, there's an anthem throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, of individuals who, who declare the beauty of who God is and who they are in response to him. And the anthem sounds something similar to as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I die daily. As he said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is our anthem as followers of Jesus. That we die, as John said it, John the Baptist, I must decrease and he must increase. It is throughout the whole Bible, this message of submission and surrendering out of a place of humility. Philippians chapter two, verse five, says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. There is a place that we can be driven from where when we look at our life, it is no longer about us, but it can actually be about Christ and other people And it can be a joyful place. A place motivated from joy. And so in a second, we we get the the joy and the privilege. We're going to wrap up maybe a little bit early, but I think that's good. Because really, there's only so much we can say in regard to pride. We know it intimately. We know it well. It's destructive. It's in us. It hides itself. We justify it all the time. What do we do? We have a Savior. We have a Savior who has come to transform us from the inside out. And in response to bending our knee, whether willingly or forcibly, when we see Him face to face, there is an entry point for every single one of us where Jesus says, If you desire to come after me, you may, but you have to start with denying yourself. You have to get over yourself. His death and resurrection has conquered that which has hindered us from him and a right relationship to redeem us, to restore us in harmony by dealing with that which separated us from him. And so in a second, what we do each week is we get the privilege to take communion. And as we take communion, it is not a sorrowful time. As we reflect upon the death of Jesus, we call it Good Friday not because it was beautiful and something to celebrate in and of itself but because of what that death purchased for us because of God's goodness because of his grace he gives more grace